When our inner ecosystems are depleted, we don't have that inbuilt carrying capacity that, that allows us to withstand all kinds of systemic shocks and little disruptions that come our way. And the same goes for any living system, whether it's a family, an organization, a community, a city, a nation state. It's the same thing. And if we don't create those conditions for life, we, we become incredibly fragile. Hey, it's Steph Dixon and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our amazing listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with Laura Storm, founder of Regenerators and author of the best-selling book, Regenerative Leadership. Laura has spent her entire career working at the intersection of sustainability, organizational development, climate change policy, and the intelligence of nature. She has started and led multiple international organizations, including the Copenhagen Climate Summit and Sustainium. She was also awarded the title World Changer by Green Biz, named one of 30 leading women in sustainability by Sustainable Brands, is a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader and sustainability expert, and serves on many boards. In this episode, we talk about inner and outer ecosystems, regenerative leadership for a thriving world, why regeneration needs to be part of business norm, the dance with ego and cultural programming, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this smooth conversation. Thanks to our Sam partner, Audio Technica. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. Well, Laura, great to have you on the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'd love to start with you walking us through a little bit about your journey and how you ended up focusing on sustainability and regeneration. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. And thank you so much for, for having me. I look forward to our sharing. So my journey towards sustainability started when I was quite young. I was very kind of concerned as a kid about depletion of ozone layer and acid rain. I'm a child of the 80s, so that was very much kind of the on the agenda back then. But of course, also the eradication of, uh, of the lungs of the planet, Amazon forest and other rainforests that were completely destroyed. And I remember watching this documentary about the Amazon forest being, being destroyed by oil, oil companies, which really stirred this kind of anger, but also confusion within me. I couldn't understand why grown-ups would allow such a thing. It did not make any sense to me. And I think that started a journey of kind of curiosity, but it also started, it awoke the inner activist in me. I was part of a, of a group that started to raise money to buy up pieces of the Ecuadorian part of the, of the Amazon. And then when I finished high school, I went there to work because I thought that my life would be as an in environmentalist working on the ground, protecting what was dear to me. And that was an amazing journey, being there and learning from shamans firsthand and walking around with them in the forest, learning about ecosystems, learning about plants, learning about the interconnectedness of life. And we did all sorts of things. It was protecting the forest, both in terms of the animals that lived there, protecting against snipers, replanting forests that we that we bought up after they had been completely depleted and oil companies had left the plot, then we would take over and st start the replanting process, but also protecting precious plant species, growing and nurturing seedlings, etc. So it was the whole kind of life cycle of, of restoration and protection. But I remember also this kind of impatience and, and almost fear that I wasn't doing enough on the ground. 
and that we needed to change the systems that were continuing this kind of negative feedback loop of of us running in the heels of the oil companies with that that were causing this destruction. How can we do something to ensure that this is not happening at all and that we change mindsets of people? So I wanted to understand the kind of the machine from the inside out. So I went back home. I studied business and both in London and, and Copenhagen Business School. And then I started to create international organizations that worked in the intersection of climate change, sustainability, and, and business, climate change policy, rather. I was very invo- involved in the in the UNFCCC process around renegotiating a successor to the Kyoto Protocol back in, yeah, from the period 2007 to 2009 in Copenhagen, and then later Paris, I started an organization called Sustainia, an organization called Copenhagen Climate Council. So I had a an intense kind of period of um, building and heading large international organizations. And then a little decade ago, I had a minor traumatic brain injury, which kind of stopped me in my tracks and, and gave me a long pause to contemplate how we were doing things also in the sustainability space. Yeah, maybe we can talk more about that, but it was certainly a wake-up call in terms of me having for such a long time depleted my own inner ecosystems and the interconnectedness of inner ecosystems and outer ecosystems that had been a massive blind spot for me. I had just kind of focused all my energy on what can I do to create discussions around impact investing, scaling technologies and solutions climate change policy, financial mechanisms, and all of those are incredibly important tools in this transformation. But they're not going to cut it unless we change the way we show up as human beings, the way we interact, interrelate, the way we treat ourselves, the way we see ourselves as part of nature. And those dimensions is, from my perspective, totally lacking in, um, in, in, this, in the field of circular economy and climate change policy, sustainability, etc., so, so since then, I've been on a journey of, of reconnecting the dots in a new way and weaving these dimensions into um, to my work. And, and that shows up in, in, in different ways we can maybe elaborate on later. Yeah, there's so much that I want to unpack about your story. And firstly, I just love that as a as a small child, you're already awakened and purchasing um, to protect trees and then going and actually, you know, planting the trees and everything. I mean, you've really done like all extremes from that to then, you know, the international building of organizations. And then, um, yeah, sorry to hear about your, your accident, but it sounded like you, you really maximized that time, even if it wasn't even intentional. Yeah, it's something I'm very grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially I I loved what you were saying about you had depleted your own ecosystems and then you wanted, and you connected that with the outer ecosystems. And it's so true that we, most of our society operates in a way that we don't, we've lost that connection or that understanding that we are nature. So, and everything is deeply interconnected. So maybe we can start by unpacking that a little bit more and how you sort of are helping people to reframe that or to remember and and make that connection again. Yeah, it was it was this process of starting to see my myself as this precious, we are all precious, this precious interconnected ecosystems and that we are a micro version of what is happening on the macro and that I needed to understand those dimensions. Um, what makes an ecosystem thrive and come alive? 
And how do we create conditions conducive for life? How do we become these nurturers of inner and outer ecosystems? And also this wake-up call in terms of how I had treated my, my own body with little regard to the fact that, that I am an ecosystem and I need to surrender to all seasons. I need to give myself breaks. I need to nourish myself so I can be in full capacity and full clarity. It was a massive wake-up call starting to really read about how, how does our nervous systems functions, our brain, and the fact that when we are stressed out of our mind, we, we are in this high beta brainwave mode. And when we are in that state, it is, it's impossible for us to access empathy, compassion, but also interconnected systems thinking. We cannot, we cannot connect the dots or, or see more than just what is right in front of us when we are in that brainwave mode. And the tragedy is that the majority of our executives and our leaders of today are, spend the majority of their working day in that, in that brainwave mode. And I think that was the same for me as well. And, and the same with, with, with my nervous systems and many others' nervous systems. When that is at beyond capacity, we have a tendency to be much more frustrated and we become more kind of irritated and agitated. And Or the other dimension of it, we become... Um, incredibly afraid of conflicts and 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 we become people pleasers. It, it can show up in in various different shapes and forms. And for those interested in that, I would highly recommend the work of Steve Porks and 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 the work around polyvagal theory to understand how does our nervous system work under pressure. So it became that okay. So when our inner ecosystems are depleted, we don't have that inbuilt caring capacity that that allows us to withstand all kinds of systemic shocks and little disruptions that come our way. And the same goes for any living system, whether it's a family, an organization, a community, a city, a nation state, it's the same thing. And if we don't create those conditions for life, we, we become incredibly fragile. So those were the, the parallels that, that I started to explore and, and be fascinated by and see this transition of sustainability in a, through a whole new lens. Yeah, it's so fascinating because I, I think I talk a lot about mental health and planetary health and how they're so deeply connected because we have to really nurture and look after what's happening inside so we have more to give to the world. But I feel like you took it to like a whole nother level. And this is what you you did even at TEDx talk about it in a way about living sustainably from the inside out and why this is so critical. And I think yeah, I really resonated with a quote that was on your website that was saying that when you neglect yourself in the process, you miss out on this sense of joy and flow and creativity. Mm-hmm. We're not able to build more sustainable societies if we withdraw our well-being from the equation. And it can be so easy to like build, build, build and to lose ourselves in the process. So how did you start to tackle that then and, and to start to rebuild from that place when you had those epiphanies to ensure that you didn't fall back into those traps? Because so much of society drives us and is framed or like, you know, we kind of have to fight against it almost. Yeah, that's such a, an important and relevant uh, question because it takes a constant dance with my ego, with the programs that has been installed in me from an early age that is part of the the cultural programming of of our collective that is in many ways has this very colonial approach to maximize and 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 make my 
myself as efficient as I possibly can, but also how we have been brought up in a world that is very clear around what is the definition of success. It's, it's, it has something to do around titles, power, prestige, money, all those kind of things. Many people are incredibly addicted to attention and getting praised and celebrated. That's part of our own shadow, of, of all of our shadows. Unless you are a Buddhist monk that spent a lot of time in, in meditation, that's part of those inner dynamics we all need to create self-awareness around. So, of course, that's something that is also sometimes triggered in me. And these days where the the whole kind of, it feels like the past couple of years, it's almost like this field of regeneration has exploded exploded. Everyone want to know about it. And and most of us that work in this space are incredibly busy because the, the demand and the request are high, which is very promising. And it says something about this era that we are navigating, which is a, an incredibly fascinating era. If, 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 you, if you decide to look at it that way, a lot of things are happening and maybe we can get back to that later. But what that requires of me is then an even higher uh, check and balance in terms of how, how do I show up in the world. So I have some rules in place that I cannot deviate from, even if my ego is telling me that I should. So I don't want to work more than 25 hours a week. And most weeks, it's actually less. But there's also something around quantity and quality, right? Because when I give keynotes, for example, I may only be on the stage for an hour, uh, but the energy that that takes is something that I, that I know I need time to regenerate from um, and recover from. So I, I have this kind of cycle to my workday where I'm, I know I need to make sure that every workday um, I work approximately four or five hours a day, which is, it, it doesn't sound like a lot, but you can accomplish quite a lot if you make sure to to show up in your regenerated motors when you are actually working. So I make sure that all, that that I have integrated all seasons into my workday. So there's time for naps, there are time for a walk, and then there's time to actually do, I, I won't call it real work because everything is real work, but when time for writing or be, in a, be on a call or preparing for a keynote, those kind of things, then it, all the other dimensions, me taking a nap or going for a walk or doing yoga or just sitting and contemplating the beauty of a plant, all of that means that I can do my work in quite a few hours while also spending a lot of time with my, with my kids. And for me, I think it's in many ways, it's the greatest act of rebellion if we can infuse our work with a sense of joy and play and yeah so it has become something where where I see it as a as an act of rebellion to make sure that I infuse my work with joy and I don't always succeed sometimes I have if I have for example two keynotes in a week. For me, that's too much. I'm an introverted and I'm a highly sensitive person. So I know I need more kind of breaks between between engagement that demands a lot of energy from me. And sometimes I don't succeed. Um, and sometimes the invitation is just too tempting for me to say no to. So, so that goes for me as well. And I think it goes for everyone. But then I make sure that I have time afterwards to recover. And for, for many, all, my approach to my work life can almost sound like a provocation because it, it feels like a massive privilege, and it is. But I, to use kind of capitalist terms, I am more effective 
when I design my work life like that. And we all need to tap into that agency of saying no to what doesn't serve us. It can be tempting to our ego, but we need to set boundaries and set no, because that little thing is depleting our resources to a degree where we can't do the things that are lighting us up and where we are in service and where we are in light, in alignment with what we came here to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're using so much of the terminology and verbiage that I try to implement into my life. It's so inspiring. And I love, you know, the act of rebellion to fuse work with joy and yeah, just having your boundaries so that you are able to do what lights you up and and provide that light into the world because the work you're doing is so important. So super inspiring. Thank you for sharing in such detail. I really appreciate it. So we've kind of now talked a little bit about the inner ecosystem. So let's talk a little bit about the outer ecosystems now. And maybe we can start by just understanding a little bit about like the root cause for our climate collapse and and what we're currently facing as a species right now. So my co-author Jazz Hutchins and I have written, we have a whole kind of big part of our book, Regenerative Leadership, that is addressing the root cause of, of our current crisis, where we're taking people back in history. And it can be a bit of a long explanation, but a long story short is that we are all, uh, to some extent, or we, we are all indigenous to the planet, right? But, but there are some of us in the modern world that have lost touch with the indigenous worldview. But even if, um, if you study indigenous uh, wisdom tradition, regardless of whether it's what we now call the Americas or in Asia or in, on Europe, there was this common denominator of having this very close bond to nature our gods and goddesses represented nature. And we saw ourselves as stewards of of planet Earth. We weren't above, we were a part of. We were a part of a, a greater interconnected web of life. And our role was to nurture that web of life in our lifetime. We have lost touch with that with that approach to life. We have lost touch with our with seeing ourselves as being stewards of this planet. And we, ha- we, we are now seeing ourselves more as the dominators, where our rightful place in the universe is to seek domination of nature and that we are above somehow and not part of. And there are many events that happened in the Middle Age during the Little Ice Age. People started to become incredibly fearful of, of nature because the church was also telling us that this was, this was the work of the devil. And to eradicate this evil that had been infused into every corner of society, we needed to eradicate everyone that had this close connection to nature. And that was uh, what we refer to today as the, as the medieval witch hunts that took place over, over a 250, 300-year period that tortured and, and brutally murdered many women and some men that were told to have a close connection to nature. And that could be every everyone from the little village midwife or wise woman who knew about plant medicine. But it could also just be women who did not have a husband. It could be all kinds of things where there was this that came this collective psychological chasm in a way in our society where we started to fear those that were in liaison with nature because nature was the work of the devil. And I think this is such an important part to understand because for so many generations, we were then taught to fear nature, fear those that knew about nature's wisdom and medicine. And that is a wound that is still part of our 
of our collective today. There's still this kind of fear within us and this desire to reject and not have anything to do with that. And, and then, of course, we spread this worldview during the colonial era. The scientific revolution has been very much infused with this. We need to understand nature so we can have our rightful position as the dominators in the universe. And with this also started to, to come this reductious, mechanistic approach to, to science, um, that instead of viewing everything as, as with this lens of wholeness and interconnectedness, we started to zoom in on the path instead of the also infusing it with with the dimension of wholeness. And again, that has just been part of slowly, but surely this has kind of infused every corner of society. It's still very much present in our education system today. This left brain hemisphere reductive mechanistic approach to to science, but also today seeing, seeing the organization as a machine. And I often talk about the great acceleration where we can see that since the 1950s, everything from methane to CO2 consumption to GDP to, to urban population to population in general to tourism to transportation, everything has just been on this massive almost violent steep increase since the 1950s. So we have we have been around as a species for approximately 200,000 years, which is 500,000 generations of evolutions. And then in the past kind of blink of an eye, we have moved ourselves away from community living. We live very isolated in big, noisy cities. We have very little access to nature. We are consuming so much CO2 traveling around the world in airplanes. We don't have this sacred re- connection to the ecosystems that sustain, sustain our life on planet Earth. So things have happened so incredibly quickly. But the good things about analyzing the root cause is that then we can start to also explore when does that root cause show up in our own behavior? When do I act a lot in my hyper-masculine? Because that, I was told by society that that is, that is how a successful leader show up in the world. Where do I portray colonial patterns in my partnerships and my relationships? Where does this left brain, rigid, mechanistic approach to problem solving, where does that show up? And then I can start to, to explore with, with curiosity. So what is the wisdom of living systems? How does living systems continuously create conditions conducive for life? And can I start to do the same in how I show up in the world, how I conduct myself, how I conduct business? So, so understanding that root cause is incredibly important also to, for us as a collective to be able to navigate us into a new era, we need to understand where things started to go utterly wrong so that we can make sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, because that's what I often see. Also, in the space of regeneration, there's a lot of colonial behavior showing up, and, and that needs to come out of the shadow, not in a way where we are judging and pointing fingers, but where we are gently holding ourselves and our brothers and sisters and are exploring these blind spots that we that we all have so that we can redesign, recreate on principles that are conducive for for life. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess this is where the regenerative leadership comes in. So maybe you can explain what that actually means and what it looks like and what the principles uh, that it is built on or that these principles that we need to build on from. Yeah, so regenerative leadership is based on on these living systems principles and how can we, in the way we design organizations and how we lead, build these organisms 
that are replenishing both inner and outer ecosystems. Regenerative leadership is based on, uh, Giles Hodgins and I call them the logic of life, but it's basically living systems principles, these principles upon which life are designing, uh, continuously designing conditions conducive for life and have done so for 3.8 billion years. So how can we lend wisdom from that? library of information in how we we show up in this new era. So the the logic of life is the way Giles and I portray them are seven principles. The first is create conditions that are life affirming, that affirms life instead of denies life and destroys life. The second is that life is constantly changing and responsive. So how can we celebrate that fact instead of rigidly and frantically trying to control life? How can we set organizations free? How can we tap into live self-organizing properties? How can we allow an organizational design that goes from the rigid mechanistic hierarchy and into a living systems way of organizing an organization where we allow the organizational design to not suppress innovation and creativity, but are actually creating conditions where creativity and innovation can flourish? That is, of course, also done by another principle, which is cyclical and rhythmical. Allow life these processes where we are also tapping into the restoring, replenishing energy of wintering. How can we restore our creative cauldron by allowing phases of, of reflection and integration? And wintering phases doesn't mean that our organization then go on a three-month leave. It means how can we make sure we have this delicious energy of spaciousness, of stillness, of allowing things to go so we can let come. It's that constant approach that regenerative leaders have of how do I hold space for emergence? I do that with the inhale, the exhale. I do that with the winter, the summer, the, the darkness, the lightness. I do that by allowing both polarities of life to coexist. I, I allow that by becoming an alchemist of transformation. And, and we need the darkness to allow the next phase of emergence. We need the, the let go to let come. We need the dying for new seeds to, to be able to grow. Another principle is that everything in life is interconnected and relational. So we need to understand that in how we do business. We need to understand that the organization within needs to see every dimension, every individual as foundational and for, for the success of that living organism. So I try, I often use the, the visual of imagine a, a body where the kidneys were continuously hijacking the heart because it felt jealous of, of the attention that the heart was receiving or where the lungs were depleting the pancreas or seeing, starting to see the organization as a living system where everyone is equally valuable and need to do their niche to the best as they can and that we need to celebrate all dimensions of that whole system. I also often give the visual of, um, of an ecosystem in nature, a concrete ecosystem, the Yellowstone National Park in the U.S., where they had eradicated the wolves because everyone was afraid of the wolf and it was not nice to go around in a national park with wolves. So they got rid of the wolves 
And then they started to notice that that uh, ecosystem shifted and it became much more fragile. The deer were taking over, became way too dominant, with, which meant that a lot of other species did no longer have access to, to their life force and their food sources. Um, so they reintroduced the wolves and then they could witness how that living system regained their dynamic equilibrium, their homeostasis. So that ecosystem was whole again. And I often use that as a metaphor because what are the keystone species within your living system? What are the, the species that we are trying to reject because they are making us afraid, they are triggering a fear in us, maybe because they are, they are too different from us because many leaders, they actually prefer monocultural environments, but monocultural environments, they are incredibly fragile for all kinds of systemic shocks. We know that in, in nature, but the same goes for human beings. So when leaders are re continuously hiring people that reminds them of themselves to to feel safe and and also sort of like an, an arrogance around that that is the successful human beings that I want more of in my company. They are missing out on so much innovation and potential for for disrupting their thinking by allowing that keystone species that have, that they have ejected into the system. So it's that lens of understanding everything as an interconnected whole and letting go of the way of running an organization where everything is controlled via Excel sheets and KPIs. That's not the way to run an organization in the 21st century. So it's, it's that understanding. It's that understanding that, that nature thrives things to a high degree of, of diversity. Nature thrives things to a, a constant inflow and outflow of energy and matter. And how can we also have that lens as regenerative leaders? We often use that kind of visual of becoming an ecosystem facilitator. So instead of the controller that sits on, on top of a hierarchy, you are actually, you are working within the living system, sensing and responding. Where is the tension point? Where is the potential? And, and you are working actively with that living system instead of against that as this ecosystem nurturer, this facilitator of, 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 of life and abundance, health and vitality. So that is the conditions upon which regenerative leaders base, base their work. That was very thorough, and I think it's a really great overview. I loved all the analogies and the visuals. I think that makes it really clear to understand each point, so I appreciate that. And yeah, it would be great if we could illustrate with a few sort of more grounded examples of how businesses are actually implementing all of these incredible principles. So an example that is not uh, not a business, but we can get back to that later, but a, a kind of a story that I love to tell. It, it's the story of Jaime Lerner that I was lucky to spent some time with during the Rio Plus 20 summit now, 11 years ago. Uh, he's no longer with us, but he, he was the mayor of the, of, of the Brazilian town, Curitiba. When he took over the role as mayor, the, Curitiba was one of the poorest cities in Brazil. And Jaime had a very different approach to running the city. There was this tradition in Curitiba that the new mayor would take 100 days close the doors, spend time with their city officials and carving out a new four-year four strategy for the town. And Jaime was very much against that. He said, I want to spend 100 days um, to, to listen to the music of my city. What, where are the harmonies? Where are the dissonances? Where can I sense the, 
the aliveness, the potential, the the tension, etc., of my city. So he did that. He walked around the streets of Curitiba for 100 days, and every day he concluded going back to his office, sitting and, and carving out, plotting like an acupuncturist. That was how he saw his work. He saw his work as an urban acupuncturist. Where are there flows where I can unleash stagnated potential? And where can I actively work with what is already there, but give it more uh, kind of flows of energy towards them? So he empowered a group of volunteers to start local farmers markets. He built small little parks. Uh, he built clubhouses for the elderly. He put poor children into schools. He made sure that the favelas, the, the, the slum districts of Curitiba, they had access to electricity. So he worked on many different levels, but he was on the ground working actively with his citizens instead of, of them reading about the, their city's new strategy in their local paper and then uh, seeing how city officials would then start to do things differently. He worked on the ground. And the interesting thing is that he was mocked and humiliated in the beginning, um, people, uh, especially the opposition, but also the kind of the elite in this in the, in the town, were mocking him for his approach. But but he managed to transform Curitiba to one of the the richest cities and most popular cities to live in in, in Brazil, which is such a powerful story. And of course, there are many many layers and nuances to this, but it's quite an interesting story. And for those that are intrigued about this story, I would recommend his book Urban Acupuncture, where he's sharing more about that. But in, in terms of, of running a business as an ecosystem, we see this trend towards CEOs uh, changing the title to chief uh, ecosystem officer because they want to interweave the title with this notion that they are in service of an ecosystem. They are not controllers. They are not the executive voice. They are ecosystem facilitators. So what I often recommend is to map your whole business as an ecosystem? What are the inner and outer stakeholders? What are the quality of the relationships between them? Because we know that the in a living system where there's a high quality in the interconnected relationship, that's also the kind of living systems that are better able to withstand systemic shocks. It's quite simple. You want to go the extra mile for someone you like and someone you have a, a relationship with, but you don't really want to do that if it's a toxic relationship. So it's about mapping what is the quality of our communication, our feedback loops, what are the quality of our connections to the raw materials that we are using in our production or in our service, and where can we start to also map our outer ecosystem stakeholders that can both be organizations, it can be individuals, but also natural resources. What is our relationship with them? Are we creating conditions for more life and a healthy vitality between us and that relationship? Um, and what can we do to do something about that? A great example is the company Interface, which have designed their factories. They produce carpets that are mimicking the principles of a forest in their in their factory. So how can we purify water, turn sunlight into energy, use regenerative material, but also have this notion that, okay, we use a percentage of plastic in our production. How can we contribute to cleaning up the mess we have in our oceans? Uh, in 2050, we have more plastic in our oceans than marine life. So they want to actively be helping address that problem. So they are paying Philippine fishermen to, to fish up discarded plastic nets from the ocean, pay, paying them a fair wage 
and use that instead of virgin plastic in their production chain, which they, again, is, is it's a closed loop system. So if a customer stains one of their carpet tiles, they can return that and get a new and that stained carpet tile would then again be used in production. So that is part of this kind of thinking, closed loop thinking that for me goes beyond just thinking in a circular production chain, but also around you as an active living system force for good. In, uh, in addressing the, the challenges we have. I mean, this audience will probably know, but we are navigating the sixth mass extinction. We have runaway climate change. This is an urgent crisis. And how can we address this by becoming ecosystem facilitators that are also creating conditions conducive for life for their employees so that we can tap into that life force energy among our employees because we need human ingenuity to be at its best right now to navigate these, this epochal hour of mankind. So it's both working on the inner and outer dimensions as this gardener that is constantly sensing where is my cultural soil depleted and what kind of new nutrients does it need to come into full balance come into wholeness yeah amazing so so much uh, there that i'd love to keep unpacking <laughs> and i just think it's yeah some really beautiful examples shared and i think it just sounds quite fun almost you know it sounds like there's <laughs> like kind of like detective work i mean you sort of said like a gardener like nourishing and, and trying to figure out like all the little pieces and how you can water and nurture different points of it and just approaching things from a very different way and and that sense of curiosity and i think that makes yes. it really fun and exciting but I also read that, you know, one of the things that you talk about is regenerative leaders also need to go where it's uncomfortable. And so yeah. what is the uncomfortable piece um, and why is that so important for this next, you know, wave of, of leadership? It's incredibly uncomfortable to, to sit on top of your little hierarchy right now or that little kind of corporate ladder that you have climbed. And then you start to look around and within you, there's a voice that is going like, what have we done? What have I done? What is it that I have contributed to? I've been so blind and I've just kind of this hamster wheel approach to life where I've just kind of been so busy walking the corporate ladder. And now I'm up here and my actions, my company's actions have contributed to making a mess, both on the inner and outer dimensions. Recognizing that, admitting that to yourself takes so much courage and the majority are still kind of deflecting and are ignoring and are making people that come up with new ideas, they are mocking them just like Jaime Lerner was, was mocked because that's often the human default. When you get challenged, when status quo gets challenged, it can be incredibly uncomfortable because you, it means you need to let go of yourself. You need to shed layers. It means you need to go through a mini death. And we as a collective have not been trained to hold space for death. We fear death. We fear darkness. And that I, I'm incredibly fascinated by, by this at the moment. This Because I see it again and again. I see it in their eyes. This fear, the fear of failing, the fear of that mini death, the fear of, of, of letting everything that they have worked hard for die so that new things can come. And to walk down, kind of just to kind of visualize, just one step down the ladder, even one step and another step. And then you are at the ground floor and you start to walk into a territory where you are the newbie. You have none of the answers. It takes so much courage. It takes so much courage to hold space for the answers to, to unfold. 
with your employees, with the new generation, but also with the older generation? How can we all, with uh, humility, with vulnerability, with compassion, how can we hold each other in this face? How, how can we all become midwives and hospice workers with care and attention so we don't run the risk of causing even more separation when we are where we are othering other human beings? We are all brothers and siblings and sisters, and we are all in, in, this, in this mess together. But I just want to recognize that it takes so much courage to start walking into a new territory. How can we create conditions for seeing death as the foundational nutrient energy, the composted energy that we need for new life to emerge? So none of this was wasted, but it needs to be composted into, into new energy. So that is often the first steps that leaders sit with a grieving process. And grieving is another thing we, we've not been trained or taught how to do. It's something that, that, that there's a lot of stigma around, a lot of shame around, a lot of loneliness and isolation around. So it's so incredibly scary to, to explore these, these fields, these terrains, because it's, it's not something that we have been trained to do. That is part of this transformation that we are navigating as a collective, that more and more leaders are rolling up their sleeves and recognizes, I need to go through that portal to be able to start contributing to life in a way where, where I can be proud of my role as, a, as an ancestor to the, to the future generations. And thankfully, that's what I see more and more of. And I'm happy that you noticed this kind of almost frequency of joy because we need that aliveness, creativity, this joyful approach to be in the mix as well. We need to access part of our creative cauldron that we haven't been trained to, to access either. But again, that's part of that kind of light-darkness dimension. That the deeper we can go in our own grief, vulnerability, our sorrow, our fear of dying, the deeper we can access new layers and dimensions of our creative, creative life force. And I see that and I'm, I'm privileged to witness that in people again and again. I facilitated a workshop for leaders in the financial sector in Denmark yesterday. So that was a whole crowd of CEOs of banks and executives in that field. And it's one of those things where I always kind of, oh, okay, buckle up, prepare myself to be ridiculed and rejected because I have been used to that a lot in the past. And I think many people working in the field of sustainability has been used to that. So I still have that kind of attitude, okay, buckle up and their whole space for, for this new approach to, to, to business and see what happens. And again and again, I'm surprised by the humility, the curiosity, the humble attitude that was not there a couple of years ago. But yesterday in that workshop, there were tears, there were heartfelt sharings, there were, yes, we want to do that. Just, just tell us how. And then my question is, I can't tell you how, but let's explore how life would create a financial sector together, for example. And I see those kind of examples happening in every sector right now, which gives me so much joy. And it is work that requires an equal amount of the joy of life and the grief of the dying, if that makes sense. It is that alchemical approach where we are not shaming one over the other, but we are creating spaces where both can coexist because that is conditions, 
conducive for life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so beautiful and really glad and to hear and encourage that you're seeing so much more of this. And even in just the few years that you're actually seeing so much more adoption, curiosity, people actually willing and and eager to be like, oh my gosh, this is what we need. Please tell us how. So I think that's that's really beautiful. And yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you're, you've seen such a shift and hopefully it continues to grow exponentially. So how do you think that we can live wide awake? By tapping into our own inner essence. I think that that is a relationship that needs to be nurtured now more than any relationship because everything, every start, thing starts from within. My relationship to my kids, my partner, my friends starts with how I treat myself, how I nourish that inner relationship. So that is the way to start. It's not necessarily easy. But creating that love-filled, deep, respectful, compassionate relationship to yourself so you could be your own ecosystem nurturer to start with because then you can create conditions for conducive for life in every circle of influence, every human being you come into contact with. Hopefully you sow a little seed by how you're showing up in integrity. Beautiful. Well, Laura, thank you so much for sharing. I think I learned so much and so inspired by all the work you're doing. And yeah, very excited to be more curious about this space and and learn more as well. So thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you so much. It was a deep pleasure and honor. Thank you, Stephanie. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Laura. Firstly, each of us is a micro ecosystem playing a part in the bigger macro ecosystems. We need to nourish and nurture what is on the inside so we can do the same for what is on the outside. Secondly, one of the greatest acts of rebellion is fusing work with joy. We can say no to what doesn't serve us, break free of that dance with the ego and cultural programming by redefining what success looks like. And thirdly, I loved the idea of the chief ecosystem officer and mapping out the inner and outer ecosystem of our companies, remembering that death is not a bad thing. It is composted into new energy and that's the cycle of life. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake.